I'm going to deal with the last part of Romans chapter 11. We've been on the book of Romans now for a year and a half with some breaks at Easter and Christmas, and as I felt moved to break, Martin Lloyd-Jones, my great intellectual mentor and spiritual mentor in the, in the church, um, through his readings, I've never met the man, but uh, he died, I think, in 1980. Of course, I was well around then, but just not a believer yet. But he always said series are difficult for pastors because pastors can't always just deal with the next thing in line. They have to deal with the next thing in line in the congregation. And sometimes the congregation has other needs where other parts of the word of God would um, address those needs more strongly and directly and specifically. But um, this section of, of Romans chapter 11 would meet our need really in in any context, because it's all about the mysterious depth of the, of the mind of God, the unfathomable, unsearchable riches in his wisdom. And so it's a great celebration, a worshipful praise of the fact that though the apostle leads us through all these winding turns of doctrine, that in the end we just throw our hands up and say, who could know the mind of God? Who has that he might give to him? Who has counsel to offer to him? And so these are the really rhetorical questions that the apostle grapples with in this section. I'm going to read verses 33, and then it occurs to me to go right into chapter 12, verse 1. And um, so we'll do that this morning. So beginning in verse 33, we're in... Chapter 11 of the book of Romans, the apostle writes, O depth, O the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And I'll add one more wonderful verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, prepare our hearts this morning to hear from this, your holy word, preserved for us down through the ages by the blood of martyrs, saints, apostles, and reformers. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the apostle revels in the magnificent, in the unsearchable wisdom of God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Although this apostle has been met by the Holy Spirit... To search those ways, 
and to teach them to us as much as humanly possible. But we can never get to the bottom of the depth of the great wisdom of God. And so as this letter is being penned, you may remember it was penned in Corinth, in the house of Gaius, who at the end of this epistle says, hosted the church. So the church was meeting in the house of Gaius. Now Corinth was a big city. I'm assuming this was a big house. And that Gaius was perhaps a very wealthy man who had come to the Lord and was hosting the church. And so here's Paul in the house of Gaius, pacing back and forth and receiving the revelation of God as Tertius, his secretary, was taking the dictation. And we find that all out in a beloved verse at the end of the, at the, end of the epistle. And so Tertius comes out of character and writes right into Paul's letter, I, Tertius, greet you. Oh, love to see Tertius someday. But the apostle's pacing. He's pacing. He's, he's contemplating. He's figuring how he shall word things. And all the while, the Holy Spirit is inspiring him in what to say. And so Tertius is at the desk with a reed in his hand and papyrus spread out on the desktop. And then suddenly the apostle stops. And it's not that the Holy Spirit has stopped preaching to him. It's that the apostle is overwhelmed by the level of the revelation that he's been given not only to know, but to write down for the first time for all the saints to revel in. It's not that the Holy Spirit has curtailed his influence. It's rather that the wondrous extent of the revelation of God has overwhelmed the apostle and very likely his secretary and his host. It's, it's almost like a, an upper room experience where they're in there and the apostles teaching and suddenly there's nothing left to do but just praise God that he emptied his thoughts out on paper for us. They didn't have paper yet. And so Paul's reca- recalling the unfolding revelations of the mysterious history of the purpose of God. He's telling us God's purpose throughout history. And he continually quotes from the Old Testament to do so. And so these mysteries are suddenly unlocked, which means what? They're no longer mysteries. Once a mystery is known, it's still mysterious, but it's not a mystery. Things kept hidden since the creation of the world with regards to the secret knowledge of God are inscribed in pen and ink for the first time. Things like this. From Romans chapter 5. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for us. In other words, we couldn't die for ourselves. Because if we did, we would just remain dead. And then he writes, much more than having now been justified by his blood. There's a concept for you. We're justified not by our spilled blood, not by the spilled blood of rams and goats, but by the spilled blood of the Son of God. 
And by his spilled blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If you remember from Romans chapter 1, Paul states the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Boy, are we in an age of suppressing the truth. Do you know that the two great scientific journals in our land, I read this in World Magazine this week, Jeannie Cheney, Scientific American and Nature, both have said there is overwhelming evidence now in our evolutionary past for the fact that there are many genders in the human race. Isn't it strange? The confusion of the world, it's like the daughter ate the mother. Science ate the truth. It's supposed to reveal the truth. What a point of irony. The greatest scientific journals have have given up. Some of the great preachers have given up. And I've got to say his name, I don't usually do this, but Andy Stanley has lost his way. And you must, if if that's a ministry that you're interested in, I just want you to know, he's done away with the Old Testament. It's not needed. Even though 25% of the New Testament is the Old Testament. It's quoted. Even though Jesus said everything written in Moses and the Psalms and the prophets must be fulfilled. And he's turned away. I have heard, I have not independently uh, verified this, but I heard that Andy Stanley has the biggest church in the world with all his satellites, which overwhelms me, that there isn't some big outcry. What do you mean? We don't need the Old Testament. And then he too said, we better get a hold of this new transgender movement because if we don't we're going to lose the younger generation because they figured this out and now we need to figure it out he said if science shows something against the word of god we must believe science for the old testament is an inspirational is a, a book of inspiring stories but not inspired by god i'm not taking sound bites friends i listened to sermons and i just thought i'd put that out there We are in one of the most confusing times in history, even for the people of God. And I'm a student of history. And as I look at it, this has to be the most confusing time in all history. A reflection of Romans chapter 1, where God gave them up to themselves for suppressing the truth. So we were saved from his wrath by the blood of Christ. And then he writes this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They should have known it. Now it's inscribed. And 2,000 years later, a carpenter in Lakeville is preaching it to his congregation. And then he writes, but the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died... Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Moreover, the law entered that the offenses might abound But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, 
even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's revelation like this that Paul is overwhelmed by. And so there is in the creation of the epistle a great, it's like a dramatic pause. And the apostle and his secretary are overwhelmed by the task they're given to do and the greatness of it and the stupendous spiritual awakening that's the result of it brings them to their knees in consideration, in admiration, in adoration of the glorious presence of God right there in that little room or big room. Amazed that God is unveiling his plan to be inscribed for all time so that we can revel as they are reveling at that moment. And don't forget Paul's first pause back in chapter 7. In this he was stymied not by the glory of God, but by his own depravity, if you remember. Oh, wretched man that I am. He preached so much on the great doctrine of the depravity of man, it finally overwhelmed him. When he personalized it, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who will deliver him. And so at the depth of the revelation of his personal depravity, his inherent sinfulness, the apostle is awakened and he's infilled. He's overwhelmed with not only the saving grace of Almighty God, but an equal grace, the absolute assurance that that grace cannot be taken away from you, not by any force in heaven or hell. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, he declares, and Tertius hurriedly writes it down, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we know, that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. The apostle, now remember, these are my imaginations of the moment, but he wheels about like a lawyer in a courtroom with the greatest revelation of all, which is the absolute assurance that what God has done, no force in heaven and earth could undo it. And so... He challenges every artifice of man, every disaster of nature, every demon of hell to undo the grace of God. And so he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then he says this, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Friends, when we talk talk about conquering in Christ and being more than conquerors, we're not talking about freedom from hardship in life. We're talking about the faith to endure it until the end. That's what he's talking about. He says it right there. He says we're killed all day long. Nobody wants to be killed. Nobody prayed, O Lord, to have them kill me. But the faith was to endure it for the sake of carrying out God's unsearchable plan. 
We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter by those who can't see and know what we know. Yet in all these things, he writes, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Conquerors conquer and then they die. The Christian conquers and lives forever. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, he writes, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Do you fear the future? Don't. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And yet with all this wonderful new imagery that he's giving them, with all the eternal assurances, a question lurks in the air, and the apostle is keen to it. And he anticipates the question. So the Holy Spirit came upon him in a new profound way, in a new measure, with a new measure of revelation. And so Paul speaks of a heretofore untold future of spiritual revival among the Jewish people within the nation of Israel. And so in the verses just previous to this, which we spoke about for the last two weeks, Paul said, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinions. In other words, once you have the word of God, give up your opinion about that subject. I had to learn that. It was a very hard lesson. You know? You think you know things until God tells you it's not that way. And now it's time for the opinion to go away. And now you know the truth. Don't be wise in your own opinions that the blindness in part has happened to Israel. God caused the blindness. And then it says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. As we said last week, the blindness is temporary. Certain generations of the Israelites have always passed away. Remember in the desert, they were there 40 years and everyone over the age of 20 were decomposed in the wilderness before God took the faithful Israelites into the promised land. You remember that? I read it to you a couple of weeks ago. And so he writes this stupendous revelation. All Israel will be saved. Why? That because it's written. It's written of old. It's written in the Old Testament. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he'll turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It was always prophesied. You know, I think we're wearied by the length of time between fulfillments of prophecy. I think it wearies us causes us to doubt and then the apostle makes this great unfathomable statement concerning the magnanimous grace of god and what is grace friends what is grace but the love and mercy bestowed upon the most unlikely those who should have gotten no mercy got it that's what makes it so godlike it wasn't only undeserved, it was undeservable. There was nothing you could have done to get it. And so the mystery of God's purpose according to election is revealed. 
That's one thing we learned in chapter 9. God's purpose according to election must stand. Not the machinery, but the fact of election was revealed. We don't know why he saves who he saves. We don't know how he saves who he saves. Really. We just know that he saves who he saves. Because it suits him. So we may never know why or to whom it will come. The mystery is forever locked in the secret counsel of Almighty God and the Holy Trinity. And then Paul writes, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the Father. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So the Jews for the moment are enemies to the gospel. But there are still those elect Jews that are called by God and will come to him. You've heard it said, many are called, but few are chosen. So if God's word is worth the papyrus it's written on, where's all this wonderful assurance salvation for his own covenant people of old? And so the spirit speaks, and so the preacher preaches, and so the secretary inscribes those faithful, faithful words. Why, Paul asks, why didn't the Jews come? Because they did not seek it by faith. That's the second thing to take home with you today. They did not seek it by faith. Friends, the Jews are going to come, but there's no special way to come. You come by faith or you don't come. And so the Spirit answers. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will by no means be put to shame. Jesus is a stumbling stone. They didn't want that kind of a Messiah. We had a Messiah in mind, but he doesn't fit the bill. He's just a guy with dirty feet and his sandals that need washing like us. He's just a guy like us. He puts his tunic on two legs at a time just like the rest of us. Friends, salvation is not tailor-made for individual people or for individual nations. It's not tailor-made. There's one size fits all. It's one size fits all. Paul said that much to the, to the Galatians where he said, this neither Jew nor Greek this neither slave nor free. This neither male nor female nor trans. We, we have to add it. We don't want to lose the next generation. For you are all one in Christ. All you what? All you men and women. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In other words, you can't be just of Abraham if you're not of Christ. The Jews knew they were of Abraham and they missed the part about being of Christ. Not all the Jews. And Paul says, I'm one. He happily says, I'm a son of Israel. I'm, a, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews. So no matter who you are, no matter where you came from, regardless of your ethnic background and your personal pedigree, you'll come to Christ by faith or not at all. And there's a point of order here. There's something I want to unravel that I think helps us understand passages like this. And I've observed, I've observed this throughout the scripture. I've made the point over the years. 
I don't know why God seems so habituated to certain things, but our God is an orderly God. Have you ever noticed that? He does things in order. He accomplishes his will in parts. He doesn't do it all at once. Friends, he took six days to do what anyone knows God could have done in the twinkling of an eye. He could have brought it all in and then take six days to revel in it. We should be worshiping six days and just working the one. Any union guys in here? They, they jumped right on that. They're like, yeah. I don't know why he does things the way he does. He could have called the whole world into being in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, but he chose to, to make it last for six days. I think I'll just create this part today, and then maybe I'll throw some stars over there to rule by night. Maybe a moon. It was his great and loving example for us to follow the pattern. He did it for us to follow the pattern. On the seventh day, the Lord rested. <laughs> he does a lot of things for us to follow the pattern. It was his great and loving example. Just as Jesus did not really need to be baptized for remission of sin, he didn't have any sin, but he did it for us to show us that humanity has sin and must get baptized. Now, I don't know why our orderly God said to the twelve, don't go in the way of the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? He does things in order. It's not time for the Gentiles yet, 12. Just go. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans. You'll go there later, but not today, right? Remember he said, go and don't take money bag with you and only take one tunic. And then later on he said, bring a money bag. Bring two tunics. Bring a sword, right? He does things in different times in different ways. He says, rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He wanted them to hear it first. It's protocol. It was Old Testament protocol, and God's following it. I don't know why the Great Commission speaks of an order, a specific order of evangelism that begins in Jerusalem and ends in the outer parts of the earth. You remember what the resurrected Christ said to the disciples? He said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's an order. There's an implicit order always in God's way of doing things. And right now, the time Paul is, is writing, this is the Gentile period. And when the fullness of the Gentiles is finished, the blindness will fall from the eyes of the Jews, and they will come in, and their coming will convict the Gentiles that are no longer coming. Our God is an awesome God, friends, of that there is no doubt, but our God reveals himself as an orderly deity as well. It seems that order is not incidental, nor is it accidental in the body of Christ, but there's always, order has an implicit decency to it. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians, let all things be done decently and in order. Don't just everyone get up and start preaching and praying and speaking in tongues all at the same time, remember? He was watching out for that. Do things in order. He said, otherwise someone will come in and they will what? Literally, his words, they'll think you're out of your mind. That's what he said to the Corinthians. And so in the divine plan of God, there's an 
order to salvation. There's an orderly deliverance of the elect. Some are called in the beginning, others later, others much later. Paul said, I was born as, as one out of due time, he said, right? He did enough destruction for ten men. And it's God's good pleasure to tell the what, but not the why. Sometimes he just tells us the what. And so he writes this, Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. But as for you, were once disobedient, but as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you, they also may obtain mercy. I don't know why he does it that way, but he clearly does. God has committed them all to disobedience, he writes, that he might have mercy on all in their time. Eventually, friends, at some time in the future, all Israel will receive the grace and believe in the gospel of Christ. And I do not believe all means all. I don't believe it means every single being. That's never been the case. All through Romans chapter 9, he showed us Isaac was saved, Ishmael not. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have, I have, I have hated. He goes on, there's always been election, but an awesome r- revival, a massive Israelites is sometime in the future is going to receive Christ. Why? Because the purpose of God according to election must stand, not of works, but of him who calls. For he who says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills, It's not of him who runs, but it's of God who shows mercy. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he'll have mercy, and whom he wills, he hardens. And you'll say to me, then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Friends, let me just say to the Arminian world, if you really had your way, if you really were right, no one would be saved. We don't come to the Lord. That's the whole point. It's something done by God. Everything we try cannot work. It cannot be perfect. Only the thing he did in our behalf is perfect. I don't know why we want to rob that glory. That's the, that's the glory of Romans. It's as simple as this. Did God save you or did you save yourself? It's as simple as that. It's not complicated. It shouldn't be controversial. And then the answer comes to the questioner. For God's not a sovereign who feels the need to explain himself. Who has resisted his will? Why does he still find fault? I don't suggest saying that at the last judgment. Well, I'm a sinner. I couldn't resist your will. How dare you find fault in me? I don't think that's a good course. If there's any last-ditch effort you can make at that point in time, that's probably not it. I'll tell you why he doesn't answer you. Because he doesn't owe you an answer. And so he chooses whom he chooses. He declares it, yet he does not feel the need to explain it. 
And yet he offers us this. He gives us a wonderful, friends, you ready for it? Old Testament illustration. (laughs) Does not the potter have power over the clay? Jeremiah used it. Ezekiel used it. Maybe we should just scratch it off the page. I get fearful even saying it that way. I don't like, I don't like the, it, even the thought of it. Does not the potter have power over the clay? So far I'm with you. Yep, the potter has power over the clay. From the same lump to make one vessel for honor, another for dishonor. Yep, the, pot, the, uh, the, um, the potter can make a beautiful vessel for flowers or make over here a little commode or a spittoon or something, right? One for honor, one for dishonor. This doesn't go in the main room. This goes back in the, in the outhouse, right? Doesn't the potter have that right? Of course, and we're glad the potter chose to make two different kinds of vessels. So far, I'm with you in the illustration. But what if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if God wanted to do that? You'll grant that the potter can do it. Does the potter have more power than God? You won't grant that God can make that decision on his own without your counsel? That's what he's saying here. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of his mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. God's not a procrastinator. It seems like it sometimes, doesn't it? It's like, what are you waiting for? But he's not. It's all worked out. You know, if we could lose our fear of the future, we would be the freest people of all. And don't think I'm saying I'm there, because I am not. I'm a fretful little man. Something around the next corner is going to get me. But I do try to just trust God for whatever demon of hell comes out around that corner. The whole of chapter 10 is about Paul's lament that election doesn't go the way of human affection. It just doesn't go the way of human affection. Neither does it go the way of human reason. But that guy's so good, Lord. And he does it purposely so we'll know it's not about us. But ultimately, those who are saved are singled out by God for the blessings of salvation, each in their own divinely designated time. Paul should never have been given. If it was me, I never would have blessed Paul after what he did to Stephen and the rest of the church in those days. I would have been too vindictive. But God wanted us to know it's not about what man does or what man thinks. It's all about what I do and what I think and my purpose according to election. We are so man-centered today. We run around church for church. Oh, do they have what I need over here? Oh, I need this. I need this. And and don't sit down and put yourself under the teachings of of an elder in the church who's given his life to these things so that he can tell you what you need because you don't know. There's no more humility left. It's like choosing meat in the meat case. They're all nicely wrapped. I think I'll take this one. This meets my need. And so once again, the apostle resorts to Old Testament prophecy to express his message. To Isaiah in verse 34 and Job in 35. We should probably be aware of a fact of exegesis. I threw this in here because the commentators are all uptight about it. Paul, when he quoted um, that section from Job, 
who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. He didn't quote it from the Septuagint. You know, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the old Hebrew Bible. And Paul usually quotes from the Septuagint, which was around for 150, 200 years by that time. Right? He didn't use it. Paul didn't like the translation. You cannot like the translation. And the Septuagint isn't the original autographs of the Word of God. The Hebrew autographs of the the original in the Old Testament. The Greek and the New, right? So he changed it. If you go back and look at Job in your English version, it will be very different than this. But Paul changed it. He interpreted it from the Old Hebrew. And according to the scholars, he got it right. And it's not, as Martin Lloyd-Jones liked to make the case, people like to say, how can it be inspired of God? Because Job was inspired of God, and Paul was inspired of God. They were both inspired of God. Paul had the, Paul had the freedom to go with the Holy Spirit's interpretation in the moment. It proves inspiration. It doesn't hurt it. So let me say, with all humility... I pray you're not still arguing about election. And I know there's not a huge argument. We are a Reformed church, you know. I believe you put on the bottle what's in the bottle. I've always believed. um, Truth and labeling. I believe in truth and labeling, right? Um, Sometimes I'm just amazed, though, what I see labeled on on church marquees. We were talking about it this morning. A couple of weeks ago I saw one that said, is your life a mess? Seek the Messiah. I told you, right? This morning I saw one. You saw it too. Jesus is God's selfie. Now, I don't really even know what that means. I mean, is it a selfie stick? You know? I mean, is it like Jesus and the Father? I mean, that is so trivializing. And that's your message to the world. Yeah, that's what we're about. I had a friend years ago, a pastor of a big church in, in, uh, in Taunton, and he had on his marquee for a long time, we're the church for people who hate church. Now, I know what you mean when you say that. You're trying to say we're not all tied up in all religious tradition. It's all about relationship, and we love all our little cliches, right? When in the end, Christianity is a religion about relationship. It's both. I know what he's trying to say, but what he's saying is we hate the bride of Christ, and he put it on a marquee. I believe in truth and labeling, not just being a wise guy to get people to come in and go, hey, they're cool in that church. can express ourselves there. It's just so man-centered, everything. Someone was telling me another one this morning about the billboard on 24. Um, I haven't seen the billboard. Have you seen the billboard? What did it say, David? What did it say, Al? Oh. <laughs> It's the old story that Jesus had long hair. He probably did. I mean, he was a Jew. He had a long hair and a long beard. Jesus lets his hair down, too. Man, leave it alone if you don't have anything real to say. 
I fear that that's blasphemy. I don't think, you know, blasphemy is a sin of speech. You speak blasphemy. You can, you know, um, Paul speaks about blaspheming through our actions, too, he said to Titus. Um, But I fear the trivial way we treat the gospel today. And why would we want the world to think we think it's trivial? Why would we want the world to think we skip Sunday service for trivial and light reasons? Why would we want them to think that? No, it's important to us. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Did you answer those questions correctly? I know you did because you're still here. The lightning didn't strike you. You didn't say, you didn't... um, you didn't say, oh, yeah, well, I've known the mind of the Lord. Yeah, I, um, I've become his counselor. Yeah. Uh, I've given to him all my goodness, and now he owes me. I mean, I know none of you said that. Now, I say such things facetiously, obviously, but know this, that the whole world is answering in a way that the apostle beckons in this passage. The whole world, ask the man on the street if he's going to heaven, and he'll undoubtedly think for a moment and say, yeah. Yeah, I'm going. I'm, I'm good. Or he'll say, oh, if there is a heaven, I'm, I'm going there. Right? He errs on the positive side in his favor because he thinks he's a nice guy. And maybe he is. He'll say yes. Or a lot of people will say, I hope so. <laughs> you better check into that a little more. You know? You know, like you do when you, when you check it in on your, on your, uh, on your, cable program or when you're checking in on your health care and you have to call the government i'm old now i have to call karen has to call the government and ask if you know my my health care is and what do you do you call and you stay on hold and the hours tick by literally literally and you can't do that to find out if you're going to heaven give it an hour <laughs> get on hold come on in hallelujah and get on hold for an hour jeez i hope i'm going to heaven But what does he hope? He may say there's, there's no heaven, and so we have our answer. If there's no heaven, no, I'm glad to be you know, turned into manure. For he's put his own conclusions about reality above the stated revelation of Almighty God. There's no greater arrogance than this. And God is calling out the arrogance of humanity here. That's what he's doing. And if you think I'm too sarcastic or too sardonic or too cynical, consider the whole tenor of the passage. Surely we're seeing the sarcastic side of God when he deals with the insufferable arrogance and the insentient. Do you know what insentient means? Unfeeling. Insentient ignorance of man. Stay with Job for the moment, since we talked about Job. And consider what's perhaps perhaps the greatest testament of divine sarcasm ever written. The Lord says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you, Mr. Darwin, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Were you giving up your Judaism and studying science in Heidelberg or somewhere? If you have understanding, tell me, where were you? Who determined its measurements? 
surely you know. <laughs> now that is sarcasm. However you look at it. He's saying to Job, Job, where were you when I created the world? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. To what were its foundations fastened? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Where were you when those things happened? Or who shut in the sea with doors? You remember originally there was no sea? It got poured out. God had to shut it in with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb. In other words, where were you when the oceans came into being? And who closed them in? If I had closed in the oceans, I would have made much more symmetrical continents. They're just, they're just too strange, you know. But, you know, it gives you all this craggy coastline that you love to see, in, you know, when you... Well, when, when you travel, what I, you know, we're seeing pictures of uh, uh, Pastor Bill and, uh, and Diane. They're doing, like, zip lines and things. I, I love to, to travel by car and see all the great sights in the mountains. I, it, for me, what it is, you drive, and you, you go like this. And then you come to a place called Scenic Overlook. And you get out, and you go, yeah, I've seen that. And we get back in, and like, where's the restaurant? <laughs> but, oh, Billy and Di, they got to climb the hill. <laughs> Scenic overlook is where I'm going. <laughs> Who shut in the sea with doors when they issued forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set the bars and doors? When I said, This far you may come, ocean, but no farther? And here your proud waves must stop. You know, the Persians got mad at the ocean one time under King, um, I think it was Ahasuerus, the one that was in uh, Esther. He got mad at the ocean. There was a flood. So he had his armies go out and beat the ocean with chains. (laughs) What do you end up with when you do that? You beat the ocean. How dare you? Imagine a king (laughs) commanding the ocean. What an arrogant person. All you got was rusty chains. (laughs) Have you commanded the morning since your days began? That is beautiful sarcasm. Have you caused the dawn to know its place? Where's the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where's its place? Can you bind the cluster of Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinance of the heavens? Can you set their dominions over the earth? And so he names the constellations. There's a controversy there that I'm going to wait for you to bring up to me. If you're still arguing election, you might as well do away with this text. Where were you? Friends, let me ask you a question. Which of us got to choose the time and place of our birth? So why would you expect better treatment on the second birth? You don't get to choose. In fact, if the day you do choose is the time you were chosen... Remember this simple rule, regeneration precedes faith. The natural mind does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can it receive them. It is impossible for your mind to receive the truth of God's Word unless God recreates it. And we read on Thursday night from Ephesians that God recreated us a new man. 
He created the new man. You're a new creation, literally. And that new creation suddenly awakens to stuff that Paul writes. Stuff that the Holy Spirit lets us know. And suddenly, things you saw all your life are now real to you. I was a little Catholic boy all my life. I said things in Mass that I can still memorize. And and, and some of them are very good things, like the creeds. Like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. That Jesus is true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. And I turned around and went away and never gave it a second thought. My parents never mentioned to me about the deity of Christ. We had no opening to understanding those sublime thoughts. And then one day God just hit me with it. And I said, it's actually true. And I said to all my intellectual friends from all the great universities around the country, all the great Ivy League schools, these guys I roomed with and knew all my life. And we were sitting in a bar. I wasn't that saved yet. (laughs) And we were sitting there in a bar. And uh, I said to him, oh, Eddie. (laughs) I said, "Uh, you know, I'm reading the Bible again. He goes, I said, yeah, I'm going to read the whole thing this time. And this guy's from Princeton, right? And he said, uh, oh, I've said that plenty of times. It's a good, you know, as an English major, you read the Bible so that you can understand references in Moby Dick. You know, call me Ishmael. Um, so you read the Bible so you know when there's a Christ symbol in, in literature and stuff. And he said, oh, I've, I've said I was going to read the Bible plenty of times. I said, no, you don't understand. I'm, I'm really going to do it this time. And I said, here's the other thing. I'm going to believe it when I read it. You can't say that. You haven't read it yet. How do you know you're going to believe it? What if something really stupid gets said? You know? I'm like, I've been opened up. I know from where this comes. It's not just a book. It's not just literature. I've read it many, many times without knowing where it was from. I'll never forget, Karen and I were at Stonehill College, a Catholic college. And we, were in, we took New Testament and Old Testament together. And then we went out and did the things college kids do, which you shouldn't do if you actually read those things, right? And we were in class one time, the Old Testament class, and the teacher was saying how this great story of Noah is a wonderful myth about the early days and, you know, how the, the people viewed their deities as, as, um, as punishing them for their sins. And a girl stood up, she raised her hand, and she went, you mean it's not true? And I... And there I was, like, my heart was broke for that poor, stupid child that didn't realize the word of God is meaningless. That's how I felt at the time, but I felt bad for her. And the teacher did, too, and the teacher was like, well, no, if, if, if you believe it, it's, it's true. You know, she had to back out of this because she destroyed the faith of a student who was depending on her to teach her about the word of God. Moral of the story. Go to college to get educated, but you're not going there to get saved. And you don't need it. And if you think you need a college degree, great. Go and overpay for it. But you don't need it to get into heaven. In fact, it's one huge stumbling block for getting in. But if you're still arguing election, you might as well do away with this section of the text. It's a celebration of the mysterious mind of God. The sheer glory of the inexplicable mind of God has rendered this apostle speechless. He has nothing but praise left. See, this is where you have to come as a Christian. And if you haven't come here, you have to doubt the 
veracity of your profession. You have to. If you haven't come to the place where there's nothing left but worship, because you recognize the one entity in the universe that is worthy of worship, if you haven't come to that place, I doubt your Christianity. And that's where the apostle is. He's had all these sublime inspirations of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly, he's tongue-tied. There's nothing left but praise for God. He's worked himself up into a place of worship. The sheer glory of the inexplicable mind of God has rendered this apostle speechless. He's nothing but praise left. And when God is truly known to you, you'll not find things to replace worship. Worship's the only thing you can give at that time. You'll not find worship troublesome or inconvenient and not suited to your needs. Worship is the only right response of those who have been in the presence of God and in the hearing of his voice. What did Isaiah do when God came upon him? He not only saw the greatness of God, he immediately saw his own wickedness. And this was a good man who worked for a good king, Hezekiah, right? And he fell to his knees and said, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. All of a sudden, the blessed Jews were also unclean. They were like Gentiles in his sight. And Gentiles to the Jew were like dogs. When God is truly known, worship is the only response. And it's his voice that speaks to you. Even this morning in the wonderful revelation of his favored servant, Paul. And so he urges the hearers, he urges the readers to simply make themselves available to God or to risk his doing it for you. And so he says, that's where verse 1 comes from in the next chapter. I beseech you, therefore, you've, you've learned the doctrine. You've heard of the greatness of the purpose of God according to election. You've heard that he has mercy upon whom he has mercy and whom he wills he hardens. And he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. The two Greek words for reasonable in, in service are logikos latria, which means intellectual. So you bring, you, you're presenting your body a living sacrifice, right? And your informed intellectual service. Latria means worship. When they say service, they mean worship service. Bring your intelligent worship along with your body. That's what verse 12 says. 12.1, rather. So be present in mind and body and rejoice in the Lord. It's, the, it's truly the only right response to this glorious unfolding of God's will and his will accomplished is the ultimate glory. Father, in Jesus' name, give us great revelation of where it all leads, O Lord, of the deep things of God and of the great glorious things that await us in the sight and presence of Almighty God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.